Hello and welcome to the Six Cells podcast. I'm Mike Nicholson from Six Cells, and today we're going to be talking about the power of context in advertising. Um, if you're interested in the subject, please do subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods um, for future updates and follow Six Cells on LinkedIn. So last week I spoke on this podcast to Jonathan Waite, who's the global head of activation at Havas Media, and Mike Follett, managing director at Lumen Research, the eye tracking company. We talked about measuring attention to advertising online. And in that session, um, I, I basically um, was able to take out six key levers um, that uh, brands and agencies may be looking at when it, um, when it comes to planning and buying attention. And those six levers were viewability, um, impactful creative, um, just going back just there. So viewability, obviously, if the, if the ad or the content isn't in view, it can't be viewed. Um, Mike Follett talked about that as an opportunity to see versus actually seen. Um, impactful creative, and we, we dug into that last week as well. The share of screen that the content or the advertising has. Um, uncluttered environments. Um, Nick Hewitt, I think in 2015, was at The Guardian at the time and called for fewer, better ads. Um, and um, that stuck with me because it reminds me a little bit of the Jerry Maguire film, the mission statement, fewer clients, more personal service, but uh, I digress. Um, so uncluttered environments, uh, quality content that keeps users on the, um, the page for longer, something Faris might call slow media. And sixth um, and last, but by no means least, was context. Now, um, John Waite at Havas was saying that when they're thinking about planning for attention, um, they have a, a kind of three bullet point plan to sort of benchmark media against. Um, that was content, context and connection. Uh, so in today's episode, I want to take a deeper diver into just one of those areas uh, and take a closer look at the power of context. So without further ado, I am delighted to welcome to, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Video Intelligence, Kai Henniges, to the Six Cells podcast. Kai, welcome. Thank you, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. So I'd like to start off, if I may, it feels a little bit remiss if I don't congratulate you on your, your big news. Uh, there's been quite a lot of big news coming out of video intelligence over the past uh, year or so, I've noticed, but um, big news that you're now part of the Outbrain company. So I was wondering if you, you might kick off by taking yourself down memory lane to the day that you, uh, you first started video intelligence um, and, um, and the journey you've had uh, to bring us up to date, please. Absolutely. So it's, uh, believe it or not, it's not that long ago. It's 2017 that we started thinking, so what problem do we solve in video? We all came from video and we were looking for something smart to do as a team. And we started out on the hypothesis that big publishers out there struggle to get video right either they can't license enough of it or they can't produce enough of it or the editorial teams don't have enough time to place the right video asset and i mean content video in their text articles and we said well we've got to bring automation to that so we started doing two things uh, aggregating video content from tier one sources and building an engine that reads out text articles and that reads out the video contents, understands what's going on, and then matches the right video content into a text article. And once we completed this, 
We took it out in Q4 2017 to the first publishing houses. And uh, the first one said, this is amazing. And the second one said, well, this is great, but where's the money? And uh, this may seem a little funny because uh, we talk about advertising and media sales and brands a lot. But at the time, we hadn't envisaged selling the ad opportunities this creates. We thought the big publishing houses would do this themselves. Turns out they didn't know how to handle video. And many of them left it to us. And we then built the programmatic pipes and ensured that there's good competition between those programmatic pipes. And then we found that this wasn't quite good enough. And we went one level beyond uh, getting into direct sales. And we never really in our DNA knew our way around agencies. So we tiptoed a bit and we didn't go all in because we never quite knew how to open those magic doors. And um, then as we found our way, we built out countries. I think Germany was the first substantial country. And then we kept adding markets and uh, really just grew from there. You could almost say a bit opportunistically, um, whatever market worked, we, we built out. Um, and the result of that, as you look at it today, is we cover most of uh, northern, western, southern Europe, uh, as big in the US as, um, as everywhere else taken together. And we then, um, even during the lockdowns that came last year, uh, opened a couple of... Um, what looked like wild cards to us uh, markets in Southeast Asia and in, and in LATAM, but those have turned out to be absolutely fantastic teams we've built and bets we've made. Um, so we actually look good as a company and we've, uh, we've had this amazing momentum since we started. Uh, we doubled every year and uh, believe it or not, even on our own strength, we're still holding that momentum this year. So I think um, Outbrain have found a good partner to power this in-stream video proposition. They've had an outstream video proposition uh, for, for two, three years now, um, and we're really after a more premium product that sits mid-article. And um, they're, of course, on... 7,000 publishers where we are on 1,100. So there's a lot of synergy there. They have, I think, 110 agency framework agreements. We have zero. So you can see there's there's a lot of synergy there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I put my publisher hat on, it was um, a few years before um, you came up with this idea, sadly, because I could have done with it. Um, but trying to get people to watch video on a site that was historically words and pictures was such a challenge. Um, and with video pre-roll being the most lucrative, um, highest yielding ad unit that you could get, of course, me in the commercial department, I was desperate for us to have more video views. Um, and the, the poor guys in editorial were just not able to do it for the longest time. For the reasons you alluded to there, I think it's trying to get the right video into the right article at scale. And we started off with putting carousel players on every page, but no one wanted to watch that. They were there to read. And it was only when we started to get 
the video into the article and then make that video contextually relevant to the article that things started to take off. But of course, then you've got the problem of well, how many videos can you put in articles this week in order to drive the views? And, and, and obviously you solve that through technology and, and, and AI. One of the reasons I was really excited to speak to you, Kai, other than it's always a, a pleasure to speak to you, but um, you, you've got two bites of the cherry understanding context um, as it as it relates to um, attention. So you've got you, you're, you're integrated at a publisher level with, I believe, over a thousand publishers globally. Um, and so you're able to help a publisher with context in terms of placing the right video into the right article at the right time. And then the second phase of attention and context that you're able to learn from is, of course, the advertising onto that video content. So it's almost a layered approach, right? You've got a piece of video into an article, and then how does that um, get the relevant attention from the from the viewer, from the visitor to that site? And then you've got the advertising onto the content. Um, so maybe starting with the with the content into the article, what have you been able to learn about the power of context in driving video views? So we've, we've had really interesting learnings around this. We've learned, for example, that if the video mirrors 100% the article, then it's of no incremental interest to the user. The, the user dwell time on page doesn't increase. If the video is not a perfect match, but elaborates on something further that the article already talks about, but the video goes beyond it, it covers it a slightly different angle, then suddenly your dwell time goes up. So initially when we were on this journey of uh, matching content to, to a page, we looked for the perfect match. And then we started to discover that the, the perfect complement to an article is a video that's not one-to-one -one the same, it goes beyond. Mm. And um, then from there, obviously you create a playlist, but this has, been, uh, this has been where we've put most of our work because yes, we started from the hypothesis that publishers struggle with video, but we wanted always the end result to be for the user to get something valuable, not some or any piece of content just so long as you can play an ad against it but actual user experience and this is where we spend a lot of time trying to measure a b tests what would user interest have been had there been no video how long would he have stayed on that page how much longer does he stay with video and also as you build these algorithms that are self-learning, putting what we think is the right video on page, you can't grade this objectively, right? Because you and I will have a different view on what's the right video for this article. So we've had interesting discussions with editorial teams who of course can override the automatic compliments we find in fact, in very few cases they do because the over time the algorithms have become so good that we just deliver what's right for the article. Of yeah. course, you need a, a whole breadth of content, but we far uh, we scratched our heads um, a lot trying to find this optimal and yet 
not objectively quantifiable match for for the articles. So that makes a lot of sense to me as well, um, because what we tried to do in the early days um, at the Telegraph is we tried to get journalists to do piece to camera. But the, the problem with because we thought, oh, that will get people to watch video. And that was obviously our overriding desire because of the, the revenue that could that could be made from from video. But the problem with that is it just literally just replicated what the words had said. And I think the, the, the challenge you get then is if users realize that the video is just basically going to tell them what they've already read, then they stop watching. So I quite like that idea of it not matching quite perfectly. So it, it kind of carries on the story, if you like, or enhances the story. You can imagine with sport, if um, there's an amazing goal scored and you're reading an article from Henry Winter in the in, in the UK, um, then him talking about that goal doesn't really add much to it but seeing the goal would obviously make a big difference so that's so, the holy grail mike that's yeah. the holy grail sports highlights yeah indeed indeed especially football as far as i can uh, as, as far as i'm concerned anyway so um so that's the that's how publishers so, so that's what you've learned from context as it relates to placing one piece of content a video piece of content into uh, into words what have you been able to learn um, along your journey about context as it relates to video advertising being placed on top of that video content? So first of all, in our journey, as we then started to go to agencies and brands directly, we quickly realized that this was our data play, right? That with cookies going away, um, us understanding context at page and at video asset level, uh, we really had a better grip on this than anyone else because video context, you can't crawl, right? You need to have that video in your CMS. Only then can you determine what happens in it and what context you are advertising against. And then as we started going out, we found some pretty easy contextual targeting concepts that are no-brainers that anyone could have done 30 years ago, like get me kids because I'm Lego and I this is who I want to target. And maybe you specify CTV as a device type. That's pretty easy. And then we we started getting some interesting briefs where we said, well, how do we make this brand happy. There was a big energy drinks brand that said, well, we want to target users in their home offices that have uh, a 3 p.m. low and they are tired and feel like drinking coffee, but we'd rather have them uh, drink our energy drink. And then we said, well, 3 p.m. is easy. Home office, we don't have any cookies. We don't know where they are. We know what they're watching. So how do we put together a segment that makes sense for the brand that at the same time, ideally allows them to spend their budget because it's not too small as a, as a targetable group. So we get, I would say these new challenges all the time. And uh, it's interesting in that you don't know as you get briefed how big the target group is that you can offer up for a brand. All you know is it's going to be in context, right? Yeah. And uh, and we don't bend the rules. We want the right people to see this. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then as you as you follow on from that, maybe more to your question, you see obviously that the the KPIs on ad view through rate shoot up when you're in context. So the big difference from buying programmatically obviously is programmatically you buy wherever you find that user cheapest. And with us, it's a bit like if you think back to the glossy magazine days where all the luxury goods ads were in context of the magazine and browsing the magazine became a whole experience where you didn't hate the ads because they were as beautiful as the pages where you had actual content. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of experience we were aiming to replicate with contextual videos so that users don't hate the ads. Of course, it has to be a good ad for that, but we see the outcome at the end because user engagement as measured by ad view-through rate is a lot higher than for any outstream ad for any non-contextually placed ad. So that's what we're after. It's been, we've wanted to cut the user into the equation from, from day one. Okay. I think, I think it's um, one of the benefits of having as many gray hairs as I do is that I've seen stuff before um, today um, and, and right at the, right at the beginning context was all that media planners had and that, and it works really well. It was just, um, it was a manual process because you had to go from publisher to publisher to publisher to buy contextually. But we always, we, like if, you, if we took a campaign for Hellman's mayonnaise and we placed it on our food content, the click-through rate, which I don't like as a, as a, as a metric, but it was all, all we had at the time, was 10 or 20 times the click-through rate that you would get for that exact same creative in a run-of-site environment. So context was always something back then before programmatic that seemed to be, it's totally made sense, but it, a media plan would have to come to one title, buy that, send the assets, make them the right size, then go to the next one, then to the next one, next to the, and to the next one. When we then um, moved into the world of programmatic and third-party cookies, it, it felt to me, it certainly feels to me when I look back at it, that if we accept that the advertising in large, in large part is about delivering the right message to the right person at the right time, context is delivering it at the right time, right? When they're, they're thinking about the, the sort of, you know, the right content uh, topic for your advertising. It felt that when we went to third-party cookies and programmatic, we kind of got a little bit obsessed with the right person and chasing the right person around the internet, no matter where they might end up. Well, let's um, be honest, it was about price also, right? Of course, about price as well. And so, and I think um, Jonathan Waite from Havas sort of alluded to that, that too often the um, the digital buys about incremental reach for maybe traditional TV audiences are dropping. And so they're trying to sort of replicate that in, um, in online environments. But I think that was to the detriment of the right time. So now we've got the right person, if we believe third party data to be accurate, and we're chasing them wherever they wherever they may be. But um, they could be uh, watching a, an avocado cooking recipe and we try to sell them running shoes. You know, it doesn't matter. It's the right person. Let's do it. Um, so it feels to me and, and I can't imagine that I'll be um, I'll get too much pushback from you considering what you do for a living it feels to me that the, re the return of context is a really really good step forward for the for the advertising industry 
um because i i feel that we got away from it too much and, and now with third party cookies going away and it seems that a lot of the big media agencies and a lot of the big brands are talking about context maybe context plus first party data is the way that they're going to sort of approach this moving forward it's i think it's a good thing even though it might be painful in the short term i absolutely agree and don't forget we can do context better and much more granular now than uh, we were able to do this 20 years ago because it's not about a publisher it's now truly at page and at content level where you can fine-tune exactly where you want to be and where you should be yeah yeah absolutely um so are, are you seeing Obviously, you can't give sort of numbers and and, and details. Are very uh, very jealous that you're doubling uh, uh, doubling year on year. I, I need to obviously pull my game up at six hours. But um, are you seeing a big um, interest from the advertising or from the brands and their agencies about how they can leverage your technology or context more um, generally um, as third party cookies go away? Is there been a definite sort of a definitive? Um, uptick in interest since this has been a thing? Well, I'll, I'll give you an interesting anecdote that we absolutely loved. So we were doing this content and then brand message matching on web and on mobile. And then we went, uh, obviously, knocking on all the agency doors and, and Group M said, well, um, we've got a lot of web and mobile inventory and we buy a lot of ctv these days but we only know who we buy from we don't know what we're buying can't you guys help us if you understand context in video and we said well this is interesting um with obviously half or more than half of the ad dollars already flowing in video into ctv we said well this is interesting we hadn't we we'd never like hit upon the idea uh, to contextualize existing video content rather than bringing this uh, to a publisher ourselves. And then we developed an extension of our product to CTV. And uh, ever since launching it last August, it's, it's, it's really taken off. So this concept of context and placing the message in the right environment um, has for us it's it's really caught on now today it's it's cross all screens uh, in CTV we've won really big partners in in Pluto and Samsung and Rakuten so uh, this really resonates we believe across the board. Fantastic. Are we at the uh, at the place yet where media buyers can buy across multiple screens um, through video intelligence or is it still? I guess because of the way the media agencies are structured, maybe that's not quite there yet on their side either. But they do. They've begun doing this. Um, oh, okay. Obviously, fully transparent as to what devices they're running on and and what um, results they're driving, um, and frequency capping can be an interesting one because we don't cookie, but uh, absolutely we're executing multi-screen campaigns on on behalf of brands. Okay. So I mentioned um, Mike Follett at Lumen Research was a guest on the on the episode previous to this one. Um, I believe that uh, Video Intelligence has also worked with Lumen Research and, and Mike Follett on trying to understand context in an online environment, certainly. 
would you give us a little bit of um, uh, an idea on how that went and what you were able to learn from it, please? Because I'm, I'm really interested in the idea of eye tracking. So it's not um, it's not panel based. It's not um, asking people if they saw something. It's actually you know seeing them see something. So I'd, I'd be curious to know what you uh, what you were able to learn from that. Absolutely. So we in in our earlier days we tried to prove a point, of course, that contextual works better, and a B tests are always hard because you can't repeat a point in time. And even if you do like one hour with uh, context, one hour out of context uh, on a publisher, you don't know what other parameters around you have changed. So we really needed a controlled environment and we found Lumen and they agreed to do this study with us on having uh, brand advertising in context against our video player on the publisher uh, as compared to out of context. And um, it's not only because we paid for the study, uh, but the results came out staggeringly in our favor where uh, brand recall shot up uh, 70% plus um, when the brand message was uh, was played in context. And this really proved our point early on. And we then did, I think, another one or two studies. The first one with Lumen was around an FMCG brand. I believe it was even M&Ms. Um, and then we did another two with them. And every time it came out proving that the brand's true intentions in video advertising driving positive disposition and recall towards their brand are uh, really improved significantly, mm -hmm. just under doubled basically. Uh, so this was uh, exactly the proof we were looking for. It was in a way, maybe a more artificial, but also a much more precise environment as compared to doing A-B tests for, uh, for user time on page. And what was kind of, I suppose it makes sense, but what was really interesting about um, that study, I looked at it before we, um, before we started this conversation, is that the increase in attention to the contextually matched video pre-roll equated to recall post campaign, right? So there, there was a very, very strong correlation between um, attention on the advertising in the at the front end and the recall um, at the back at the back end. So um, it would appear to be um, it, it kind of makes you wonder how we got away from contextual matching in the first place, right? You gave the uh, the examples of um, of magazines, and, and you would never find a, a an, um, Chanel advertising next to um, a Panini's football album or something. It just wouldn't happen. They wouldn't feel that that was um, contextually relevant. I was reading something that Rory Sutherland um, said. He said that Maserati have stopped uh, advertising at car shows because a $300,000 car seems quite expensive when you put it against other cars. So they started advertising and displaying them at yacht and plane shows because it feels like a, a, an impulse buy when you're looking at a five million pound yacht, whereas in a, a car show, it feels um, like extremely expensive. So again, it's that contextual, um, that contextual relevance. He also talks, I think one of your um, studies with Lumen was around coffee, right? And he talks about Nespresso 
Um, and if you, um, I, I live on Nespresso, I love them, but um, they come in little pods if you're, for those that are not aware. Uh, if you were to um, fill up a, ne a jar of Nescafe with um, Nespresso, it would cost you about 80 quid to buy a jar of uh, Nespresso. But because you're buying them in pods and the context at which they are, um, advertised to you is like it's like Starbucks it feels quite cheap like at 50 or 60p a pod whereas if you were to put it next to Nescafe you'd have to be insane to buy it but it's exactly the same product and price um, but it's just delivered in a slightly different context um, yeah it's it's really interesting so um, I have to ask um, do you think were you one if, of the first we, look we I feel especially strongly about this because video is an expensive way to get a brand message across. And you should, as a brand, have the right outcome in mind. It's not right for middle of, or bottom of funnel. Uh, the ad is much too expensive to produce. And if you're after clicks, uh, there's certainly more efficient ways to get there as our new corporate parent outbrain would would be able to demonstrate. But if you're after top of funnel, if you're after positive disposition towards a brand and recall, uh, then we're perfect. And then deliver the ad in context. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. As I say, like the, um, the difference between contextually placed and uh, run of site ads when I was... Um, when I was out publisher was insane. Um, and so it, it feels weird that we ever got away from this, but as, as we've already touched upon, I think it was partly price, it was driving the price down and it was the obsession with finding the right person, um, not necessarily the right place. Um, Kaya, I wanna, wanted to ask you, um, having a thousand publishers globally uh, working with video intelligence, that's a lot of publishers. Um, did, how did you manage to, um, to do that, do you think? Were you one of the first movers in contextual video and and so you were able to um kind of sign them up quickly for want of a better term but um i was reading something in i think it was digiday a few months ago um, and an unnamed publisher exec said that when he opens an email now and uh, realizes it's from yet another contextual vendor uh, he closes the email at that point he just can't keep up with the volume of emails that he's got in his inbox um, and so you're obviously doing something very right to um, to be able to um, partner with a thousand publishers. Um, I'm just curious at what you think that might have been. So, Mike, to be perfectly honest, I think we built a sound product. We focused on quality. And initially we got, I think, with the first three or four publishing groups, European quality um publishing houses we got lucky uh, we just walked into the right people and their positive reception encouraged us to go on then came the incredibly hard part because winning the next hundred was incredibly hard and we almost felt like this isn't ever going to happen and we didn't quite know how to scale but then as you get into something and you really apply your mind um, eventually you succeed and and how are we able to grow and retain the publishers because this is the big thing uh, every 
big publishing house that we've signed, they haven't churned. They've instead shown us more of the sites they own, uh, that they partner with. So owned and operated inventory from existing partners has grown year on year. Uh, so uh, our, what we call tier publishers only grow. And I think this has been part of our success story, not because we were set up as a team to give the most amazing key accounting, of course we talk, but because it's a quality product that resonated. It, it made the money, the user experience has been good at, and, and we've stacked up to the promise we gave at the outset. And, and this is really what did it. On the other hand, if you ask me what hasn't worked so well in publisher acquisition, initially we thought, oh, this is amazing. Let's win the long tail of publishers. And we built all these integrations with WordPress tools, self sign up processes. And at one point, I think it was 2019, we had like 50 self sign ups a day. And we thought, now we've got this nailed, right? This is, uh, this is the best it's ever going to be. It can only get better. But then we discovered that all those small publishers didn't make it onto the media plans of the large brands wanting to advertise in context because they want to be on known quality sites. Comscore top 1,000, maybe top 2,000, but not a small site. So um, we discovered we couldn't do those smaller publishers justice. And reluctantly, two years later, we closed down that process because we really couldn't make those publishers happy commercially. So uh, publisher acquisition has been quite a journey. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, but with the, with the technology that exists today, and you, you, you alluded to it earlier, um, if you're on the page in a WordPress site, um, you're able to, I believe, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you're able to, um, to read the words as a lot of other technology can, but also read the video, right? So read the metadata of the video and understand what the video um, entails. Would brands still not consider that to be a bit of a win, um, despite the fact that seems to deliver everything? It's brand safe, um, it's contextually relevant, it's in front of the right person. They still were like, no, no, it still has to be on a, on a, on a named site. Where we, where we sell on IO and we get to interact in person with the agency, media buyers or the brand, uh, we can absolutely make that argument. Where these are PMP or programmatic buys, uh, although the quality is there, if the site isn't big enough, uh, they never make it to the media plan. So this has been this has been the lesson. As our direct sales grow, you're absolutely right. As it stands right now, um, we still struggle to do those smaller sites justice. Okay, got it. Um, I think your Slack's going off there, um, Kai. I don't know if you're just able to just uh, <laughs> turn that off just for a few seconds. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Okay, so so if we think about learnings um, from context that you've had um, at a publisher level and at an advertiser level, um, what are the what are the three things that you would say to a publisher that they can do in order to um, in order to sort of increase video views? And what would be the three things you would say to a brand um, from everything that you've learned on your journey so far? So to a publisher, I would say. 
make sure you open up space in read that really has a connection to the article that's written it doesn't need to be right underneath the headline but under the first or second paragraph is good because that's how you create also in terms of placement the right context um, that suggests to the user that this video is not an ad it's a connection to the content that you're reading therefore this is a valuable thing to watch because otherwise the kpis and monetization are going to end up as a disappointment um second recommendation to a publisher if they have their own video content by all means ingest it into our system because we'll be able to play it back into their own text articles with practically no effort at all for the publisher and yet with precision and speed and the third um, also uh, use our platform and system uh, to insert demand that your own in-house sales team sells because we can deliver that demand within the right context uh, possibly more efficiently than than any other tool in the market okay that that's i think that's going to be key this year that last part in particular i mean they're all great points but I heard you talk on LinkedIn about um, hyper premium inventory um, and you were just kind of describing as third party data went away um, and we now replacing with first party data, it's probably an awful lot more accurate than third party data, but there's less of it, which is going to create this um, much smaller, but much more valuable um, slice of inventory at the top. That is video that is um, good viewability scores, um, uh, high view through rate. Um, contextually targeted to the content that it sits in front of um, and um, uh, enriched with first party data. And because there's less first party data, obviously there'll be less of that inventory. So do you see um, in the market that publishers are trying to sell as, I mean, publishers have always wanted to sell as much as they can directly, but is there more of an effort as we're moving forward to sell even uh, an even larger percentage of their inventory directly to advertisers rather than rely on third-party resellers because there's obviously a lot of ad tech tax related to plugging in a third party and, and sort of letting them rep your inventory if you like i hear you at the same time selling to brands via agencies or directly is not easy and many publishing houses have wanted to do this but have failed because it's a it's a long road and i think you can only do this successfully at scale and in the back end you still see this whole spaghetti salad of everyone working with everyone just to make sure that every ad opportunity gets taken up so i think this purest notion of a publisher only selling their own inventory infused with contextual data and first party data, they may be 
a handful of examples of that, but they're few and far between. And I would think you need real scale to make it happen. I mean, uh, just to give examples, um, like an ultra premium environment like Condé Nast are creating it, um, they, they get away with it. Um, but the more you go broad, uh, the harder it is um, to actually make the strategy happen. So a lot, and we see this every day, comes back to ad tech vendors like us. Yes, we take a margin, uh, but we're also good at what we do, right? Right. So, so you're probably still paying less, uh, granting us a... Uh, a percentage of gross uh, and you get the whole product, you get the content and you get the media sales. Um, if if um, you did that in-house, you'd be paying a lot more. Okay, got it, thank you. And then if we move on to brands then, so what would be your three um, key takeaways for brands as it relates to context? So it's absolutely um, booking on context rather than um, programmatically on third-party cookie. So it's it's giving this new, old, rediscovered way of targeting a shot um, to see and be surprised at what KPIs it drives. Um, so trying it out the first. The second is uh, measured success on the right KPIs. So if you're doing brand video advertising, go on brand values that you want to see boosted. We offer these brand lift studies. Go on these true top of funnel metrics. Um, Things like brand recall, ad recall, absolutely, yeah, purchase absolutely. intent. Yeah. Go, go on that rather than try and bastardize a beautiful video ad to drive conversions by saying, well, can't you also run an overlay? And I want to see people on this landing page. It kind of hurts when brands do that because you, you can instantly see that they're not wholehearted top of funnel brand advertisers they're really after an immediate outcome yeah. and and video is not made for that video is really made for driving this brand disposition and brand recall yeah and the third is you had suggested it earlier to um to try cross screen campaigns multi-screen uh, from ctv down to mobile and um and play until you find the right mix Okay, fantastic. Um, just to finish us off, um, been a, a great conversation and thank you once again so much for your time. Um, what's next for you guys um, as a part of, of Outbrain? What is, uh, what is the plan or at least the plan that you can talk about publicly? So the plan I alluded to it earlier is, is accessing this big publisher base uh, that Outbrain has. I think we've signed the first handful of deals and you know how it goes when there's a handful there's there's many more it proves the ideas right 
so we're pitching into this existing publisher base. At the same time, on the demand side, uh, we're being brought into uh, the agency conversations by Outbrain with a whole new product that sits top of funnel. Uh, the agencies seem to like it, so there's a lot of work to be done there. And the third is uh, going to whole new territories. Um, I mean, the most exciting is going to be Japan because uh, I've never been there. I can't read the language. And yet I know it's one of the biggest media markets in the planet. And I'm, I'm super excited to see how, how we play there, how our technology uh, will deal with uh, Japanese language signs, um, the Japanese alphabet. It's, it's going to be super exciting. Yeah, for sure. Like reinventing all over again. Like <laughs> Absolutely. From scratch. Oh, well, um, it always reminds me that um, when any, anyone says that they're going to Japan, it always reminds me of that 80s pop song, Big in Japan. So let's hope that you uh, that you make it big in Japan. Right? Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a, been a great conversation. Um, there's obviously a lot um, to be learned from context, both from a from a publisher and a brand point of view. It's it's named, as I mentioned um, at the start of, uh, of our conversation today, it's named in the Havas planning toolkit, if you like. Um, it's been proven through eye tra tracking technology to make big um, a big dent in attention on the front end and recall on the back end. Um, and it's it was been it's been really enjoyable to uh, to dig into that a little bit more with you. So, uh, Kai, thank you very much once again for your time. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Hope to be back someday. Thank you. <laughs>